Hey, it's Nick back once again. I'm going to jump straight in here and confess it. Alas, this is not the promise special. Yeah, I know, I'm sure you're all absolutely devastated by my uh, my apparent treachery, but fear not, it will arrive at some point in the future. It's just that real life kind of got in the way. But let's have a look at the Twitter update first, right? That's at Arev History. And we're up to 60. You know, 60? Wow, what about that? The Facebook page, which is Irreverent History, is up to 63. I mean, this is world domination coming, isn't it? Can you feel it? I can certainly feel it. And that's probably, to me, that's the best part of all. It's not the world domination stuff, but the fact that people are actually using social media to contact us. People like, there's uh, Piper Willie from Canada, uh, guys called Jeremy Rawson, is it Connor Bailey and Carl Segge from the US? I hope I got those names right. And Ryan McConnell, Lucy Hanna, and Esoteric Bob, I think, whose locations, to be fair, are unknown. But it's really cool hearing from you all the time. Just sitting here, you know, speaking in the mic and facing this bloody magnolia wall and it's class that you guys are out there kind of taking the time time out of your days to listen and even interact with us it kind of really just blows my mind and apologies if i've missed anyone by the way it's been honestly there's been so many messages it's really it's really class and i will get to you soon oh and a final shout out to a guy with uh, the twitter handle critical underscore bollocks i've had some really good twitter chats with recently and despite him declaring himself from the other side which I kind of just assume he's been watching Stranger Things and thinks he's from the upside down, but he seems like a dead-on guy. Anyway, let's get on with episode X or 2, if you speak binary, which is episode 010, The Fields of Sash and Rye. Learn of the past, answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of monsters or in history. Yes, people, you heard me right. That is the Fields of Sash and Rye. Now, it's a mashup of two songs, and I wouldn't really expect to be sung by the same crowds. That of the Sash and the Fields of Ath and Rye. Now, if you haven't heard these songs, they are, they're seen by some as divisive. 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 With lyrics that kind of express their kind of partisan sentiment, you know? Not exactly the kind of songs you're going to sing at a cross-community gala. Now, the belief is that they stem from two different cultures and aim to strengthen the resolve of one of those cultures against the kind of tyranny of the other. Now there's loads of songs like this, but to choose these two, I took guidance from the SFA, which is not Sweet F all, it's a Scottish Football Association. Now under their banner, they have two absolutely massive footballing institutions, that of Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. These two kind of behemoths of the world game are, are not necessarily so popular because of the quality of their football. I mean, you know, Barcelona aren't checking out their players, Liverpool aren't having a look in, you know. They actually represent something much more to some people. They are, they are lightning rods for, for a culture clash. You know, polarising opinion, raised flags that embody a nationalist slash republican or unionist slash loyalist background. When these when these two teams contest a game, it is fierce. It's known as the Old Firm Derby. And I've been quite lucky enough to attend a few. The stadium, or whichever one it is, seems alive with the hatred and the violence, which I have to admit can make for a really intense and really enthralling atmosphere. And this in turn is uh, personified by the colours and the banners, and especially by the songs that the fans choose to sing. Some of these songs are banned due to their obviously sectarian nature, yet they can still be heard bellowing around Parkhead or Ibrox, which are the home grounds of these vastly supported teams, or even sometimes at home, sitting there in front of your TV with your kids doing a jigsaw and all of a sudden you hear the Billy Boys or Glasgow Celtic IRA or the Famine Song or, or what the song about the Ibrox uh, disaster just pumping out of your TV. Really, it's just one side relishing the death and the sorrow felt by the other. 
Some of these songs are tolerated, however, and despite their possible contention, two of these are the Sash and the Fields of Athen Rye, and those are the ones we'll focus on. These tunes will be heard throughout Ireland, throughout Ulster, throughout Scotland, anywhere there's kind of orange versus green kind of controversy. Thousands upon thousands of headers just belting them out, but you know, do these choirs of controversy actually know what the lyrics mean? Or do they just love a good old sing-song? Happy just to be pissing someone off without really understanding why. Well, that's what we're trying to discover. It's like when I was maybe maybe 11 and I heard a song, Ebony's Are Good by The Shaman. It had a really good beat and I couldn't understand why so many people were penning letters of complaint about it. It was only upon hearing it a few years later that I understood that it wasn't just a shortened version of his name when they sang, E's are good, E's are good. You know, sometimes an understanding just takes a little bit of time. And maybe now is the time. So if you're ready, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So before we get bogged down in the deep and dirty, let's just have a quick step back in case anyone doesn't understand the current situation in Ulster. Ulster's in Ireland. And it has nine counties, six of which belong to the UK and three of which were jettisoned to form the Republic of Ireland due to not being Protestant enough. Those that like this kind of current situation are basically known as Unionists amongst a plethora of other names. And those that don't like the status quo can generally be known as Nationalists amongst a plethora of other names. And I would add here that the Unionists definitely have the upper hand when it comes to the inventive slang terms. Just check the Urban Dictionary if you want to see for yourself. Now, groups within these groups have been known to spread their message slash propaganda through things like social media and murals, and especially song. And these groups or sects, when singing these songs, tend to get called sectarian, which is where that term comes from. You got that? Cool. So these two songs are deemed legit by the SFA, so we're wanting to see if the masses who sing them kind of understand what they're singing about. And to help us with this, I went into my work. Now, my workplace was once an absolute bastion of Protestantism. East Belfast kind of finest in the tools, you know, doing an honest day's labour for barely a shilling in 3D or some old money term I don't really understand what my granny uses. But during the July fortnight, which is Northern Ireland's kind of national holidays, there used to be like bunting draped all over the factory, marching bands would strut up and down. And get this, there's even a rumour of someone riding a horse through it in the late 80s. But that was many years ago. And it just wouldn't and couldn't get away with it today. Now, I don't have the exact figures, but certainly in my department, it's a pretty even split in heritage. So being a bit of a wag and a scamp as I am, I asked a few of them a couple of questions. Just about the two songs, just for the crack, which, by the way, that word may be heavily associated with the Irish, but is possibly from English originally. Oof, just a wee throw in that curveball there, you know. But if you're wondering, we all get on really well. There's no issues, like, especially as there's a new enemy in town. A darker foe, one... More devilish and devious than any side of the great Irish divide could ever be. One that works in the shadows to destroy lives, worshipping their own god. Yeah, I know, you know who I speak. It's only the feckin' outsourcer, isn't it? Irritatingly, the nation brought up in bigotry and division, these guys care not about religion nor culture, only about their bottom line. Like they overpromise and underdeliver on everything, all the while destroying careers at every turn. But let's have a listen to what some of my co-workers had to say. But bear in mind, I did spring this upon them. And some of the interviews were early in the morning or late at night. And they were all recorded on my iPhone. So there may be a bit of background noise. Oh, and it's only excerpts of what they said. I have edited. And the views expressed are not necessarily representative of this podcast. Thank you. Why do some people celebrate the 12th in Northern Ireland? Just an excuse to drink. 
celebrate it because the bonfires were lit as a way to guide King Billy to the Battle of the Boyne. It's an important part of our culture. Well, I think it's to celebrate unionism. Sort of, well, it's obviously a Protestant community that celebrate it, and they would be celebrating in order to celebrate the unification of Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Somebody a long time ago won a battle and they decided to rub it in somebody's face the whole time. Well, I believe that it was when King Billy won the Battle of the Boyne. Tradition of 1690, where the Battle of the Boyne was won. I equate it to the 4th of July in America because it's all hype, it's all... This is our freedom, this is our civil liberties, we can do all these things now, whereas before, you weren't allowed to. Have you heard of the South? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do people sing that? Tradition. It's a traditional song from a particular part of the community and it's sang at a particular time of the year for... A celebration of a military victory. Kind of says it all. I guess we were I could play it on the... Oh, on the I could play it on the tin whistle or I could play it on the, on the flute. The first three notes Aye, of the... With no flute, you can play in your ruler. You stuff it in music class. It is ago. old but it is beautiful and the colours there are fine. It is born in... Oh, it was worn in Derry, Ogram and Eskillen on the Boyne. Sure, my father wore it in his youth, in the grand old days of yore, and it's on the twelfth I love to wear, the size my father wore. Can you sing, is it? No. <laughs> I don't know if I want to yeah. sing. Are you going to sing a note? It was bold and it was beautiful. Well, that's close enough. I don't really know the words of it. I'm, I know, I know the, the tune. Okay. And when you hear it, sometimes it's going to be quite scary. Sash my father. Who contested the Battle of the Boy? Uh, William of Orange and James the Summit. King James the second, I think it was the second, and William the... James and William. Don't know what their fucking numbers were. <laughs> okay. Was it William of Orange and a another? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, King Billy himself. King William of Orange. Um, but against... Uh, Potentially King James, but I may be wrong there. Prince of Orange? Against. The other guy? King William of Orange and King James. William of Orange and another king. Williamite armies of King William of Orange III and James II. Essentially it was just two groups of people fighting over the English throne by proxy. So yeah. one answer could just be it was fought between the English or Dutch. Really had fuck all to do with the uh, Irish or Northern Irish or Ulster people. Can you name the places referenced in the sash? I think you've heard of the sash. Oh, aye. It's Derry, Ogram, Minneskillen, and the Boyne. One is uh, Derry, Stroke, London, Derry. Yeah. Stroke City. Right. Um, and that's about the only one that's coming to mind at the minute. So it's like, but it's. Uh, Darius Walls. That's what I'm talking about. No, I don't. Sorry. Darry, Ogram, Anniskillen, and the Boyne. Darry, Ogram, Anniskillen, and the Boyne. Do you know when it was written? No idea. Probably in the 1700s. No. No. Have a clue. No. 40s? Maybe? 1940s? Yeah. 
around 1690 at some stage. 20th century. I think it might have came quite a bit later because um, well into the 1700s, maybe even as late as the 1800s because the Sash, they didn't go into war, they didn't go to war with the Sash and things like when they say it's old, it is beautiful, the wearing of bowler hearts and Sashes and that was a relatively new tradition in and around the 1800s. I think the Sash would have been in and around that time as well. I don't think it was a 1700s thing. How do you feel when you hear the Sash? Sometimes just disappointed. <laughs> um, and other times when I've got a little more energy, disgusted. In some ways it's like happy memories because back then it was, wasn't like it is now and I haven't been in years so I don't know what the brain's like in Belfast now, I'm just making assumptions, which isn't right. But um, back then it was, it was nice, it was everybody got together, everybody, you know. So whenever I hear it now it reminds me of those times. I don't go out every year trying to celebrate something that I don't remember. And I think most people who sing it actually have no clue what they're singing about, so that really annoys me. So it does, doesn't bother me in the slightest. Cool. No. I, I, the only time you ever hear it is when somebody is, is kind of having a laugh. and. Uh, on a trip up to Belfast, I uh, was driving through Tate's Avenue and got stopped by, a let's say, a street full of hooligans. And to prove I was a Protestant, me and my friend had to sing the sash. Okay. It was all right. Let's not watch the people. Have you heard of the Fields of Athenry? Yes. Do you know any words from it? Uh, low lie the fields of Athenry, where once a young free bird something or other. Very good, very good. Where <laughs> once? Where once I saw something, something. Low lie the fields of Athenry, where once we watched the small free birds fly. What's it about? Some kind of battle at Athenry. What's say it's a battle? I thought it was to do with a famine, but it's not. I don't think. The war? No. I really don't know. I know it's not a Republican song. Young Love and The Famine. 1970s, is it, or 1960s? Most famously sung by Paddy Riley. Do you know who Trevelyan was? No idea. Uh, Lord Trevelyan? Yes. No. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be so ashamed of me. <laughs> so ashamed of me. No, I've heard the name, but no, I don't. English slash British landowner. Did he have a say in the amount of foods that went to England? I said, you can export this, they can live in titties, there are no titties, well, we're still exporting. Um, I'm thinking of famine here, but was he one of the ones that fucked people over in the famine by not allowing access to land? He may well have been. Do you know where Botany Bay is? No idea. Australia? No. I know how it's spelled. Is it maybe in France? Is it America? Australia? Uh, it's Captain Cook. Where it's in the Pacific somewhere. Uh, Australia. There you go. Well, uh, it's far away from the fields of Athenry. And what do you think when you hear the fields of Athenry? How do you feel? Uh, it's a very sad song. You know, it, it, it always... It would get, well, one, I don't know whether it's the medley, because medleys tend to make me tear up more than the words. Okay. But uh, if, it, when it, if I remember back and you think of the story of it, it's a very... To me, it's a sad tale. It's actually quite a nice song. I quite like it. Apart from some drunk people singing it, yeah, no, it means nothing to me. I don't feel anything. I just It's just a song that people sing to in bars when they're watching certain football games. I, I don't find anything offensive. I have no prejudice. 
in any way. I have a mixed family. And we were in France a couple of years ago and met a family from Manray. And they, I thought it was great, but they were not fussed. Now, while you might not have been able to tell, you know, I have no formal training in the intricacies of interviewing. I know, I know, gobsmacked our us. It all seems so natural with a great flow. Thank you, thank you. But I think I actually scared a few of them, and others I could have teased more out of. I found their answers, like, really interesting. I was really especially pleased with how they tried to destroy this episode by most having so little knowledge of either song. Like, it's obviously not conclusive, but I just expected most people to know one or the other, which is probably just a bit of casual sectarian uh, stereotyping on my part. And what about the younger people? They just seemed to have a real indifference to both, didn't they? Like, they just didn't care or didn't want to care, probably more into their tans and tattoos and tailored outfits, to be honest. But in that, you could maybe argue that they proved my theory, that people just don't know about these songs. And it's that merry bunch that we are trying to reach out to, which, yes, is a really irritating and cringeworthy term, isn't it? Reach out. Guess who uses that? Yes, it's the outsourcers. The vocal equivalent to me of scratching a blackboard. But, anyway, before my blood boils, let's start with a snippet of the sass, shall we? Huh? Just to get you in the vibe. Verse 1 aligns the writer with Britain. Verse 2 remembers the history and is like a, a, a veiled kind of call to arms if anything tries to interrupt that, that kind of historic bond. And the third is a reminder that Ulster is orange. Now the course is definitely the most interesting though, is it? It's also the most recognised. It talks of the eponymous sash being worn at Derry, Ockram, Inniskill and in the Boyne. And as we heard from the interviews, not a lot of people knew that and even less knew the battles they referenced. As promised, we're going to put a little bit of context in this, but just before we do, if you want to know how much this song can annoy some people, check out the video on YouTube of the Portuguese busker playing at the Celtic fan on his accordion. It's absolutely hilarious. But anyway, there was a young man from Buckingham who tried to cross religion. Yeah, that's me ripping off Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves there, but that man was called James II. He was a Scot, yet a king of England. His dad was Charles I who you may know as being the victim of regicide, or king-killing, and his crime was being too bloody Catholic. Now, he was succeeded by the notorious Oliver Cromwell, a man who wreaked havoc against all peoples in Ireland, until he died in 1658, after which, as a reward for his sterling service, he was posthumously executed, by which basically they dragged his body up there and cut off his dead head. James's older brother would become Charles II. You know, he had a bit more chill, possibly due to being aware as to what an enraged parliament was capable of. He took the throne of England when it was restored in 1660. And he died 25 years later after presiding over pretty much nothing. You know, it was a decent reign, but not much happened. But if Charles had been the big brother, meticulously building a millennium falcon from a million pieces of Lego, 
His little bro, James II, was the brat who smashed it to pieces with a hammer. James took less than five years to undo Charles's work. He hadn't learnt the lessons of his dad's decapitation, and he launched into his kingship as ultra-pro-Catholic. This did not sit well in England, but with the Civil War still fresh in the minds of the people, another monarch murder, it was out of the question. So Parliament took another route, whipped out Tinder and started swiping right in all the regions of Europe before finally locking lips with William of Orange. He was a Protestant of some repute and the leader of the League of Augsburg, a collaborative force acting as a bulwark in Europe against the highly powerful and highly Catholic Louis XIV of France, known as the Sun King, Le Roi Soleil, and he was a key ally of James II of England. And William was obviously interested as he swiped right back, perhaps even colluded to get the throne, as he knew the threat England's naval power could be to the hated French. He landed in Britain in 1688 to a hero's welcome. Banners stating, For God and the Protestant religion, greeted his arrival. He sauntered from the boat, sat atop of his famous white horse. Symbolism like that from Revelation 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Yeah, that's lifted directly from the King James Version. And there's a little bit of irony there if William used that Bible for his inspiration, as its sponsor was, of course, James II's granddad. And there are more family ties in this, as William was married to James's eldest daughter, Mary. So he was also his son-in-law. And he was also his nephew, as William's mother was also Mary. The sister of James, though. And hopefully that's just a coincidence that his mum and his wife have the same name. Although you wouldn't really be surprised, would you? As it's all very inbred, isn't it? And Parliament, they didn't care. As in early 1689, they formally offered William and Mary, not his mum, hopefully, they offered them the throne as joint monarchs, an event known as the Glorious Revolution. Now, the former monarch James had bolted when he heard of William's arrival, both his horse and his arse presumably brown. Now, he appeared in France, begging for an army from Louis, and pitched up not long after in Ireland, reasoning that the, the vast number of Catholic inhabitants would rally directly to his cause. And many did. You know, he kind of swayed through the southern lands, marching north and knocking on the doors of Londonderry, deep inside the heartland of Ulster. Now, we spoke about this in episode 003, you know, border weavers to banjo weavers. And many of the 30,000 Protestants that swarmed into the city were of reaver stock, terrified by the arrival of the furious James. And they closed the city gates with a declaration to not admit any papists. The fate of Protestantism in Ireland hung in the balance, and I let one of my work colleagues elaborate here a little. And the primary reason for the siege of Derry is because the apprentice boys were very loyal to the English throne which meant they were very loyal to James, because remember, James had been a Protestant for long enough. Aye. James had strategic reasons to come to Derry. He was not coming to Derry to besiege it. He had not an army to besiege Derry. Yeah. He came because he knew he would have support from the men of Derry. The apprentice boys of Derry were his most loyal subjects. And so what put a big kick in the whole apple cart here was, what knocked the, the cart over was, much to his surprise, they closed the gates. That's why they sing about that. You know, the, 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 the apprentice boys closed the gate and obviously the siege began because James wasn't expecting the gate to be closed. Yeah. And they said, we're loyal to our king. 
but our loyalty to our God comes first. And so it was on April the 18th, 1689, that James II, fresh from a number of military victories, offered terms to the city of Derry and was greeted with the infamous cry of No He sat motionless in the rain, just out of range of the guns, scundered by the city's refusal to submit. Embarrassed, he left for Dublin as the noose tightened around Derry's defenders, and they found themselves increasingly cut off. Inside the great city walls, the scene was nothing short of bleak. The inhabitants awaited news of Williamite reinforcements, but they did not come, and the days grew darker and more desperate. Money and food was scarce, but there is actually a surviving food price list. And get this, on the menu are such delights as horse flesh, dog's heads, cats, rats, or, bargain of the week, is actually a quarter of a dog, in brackets, fattened by eating the bodies of the slain Irish. Mm-mm-mm, I am salivating at the very thought, eh? Oof. But these desperate souls that were stuck inside, they kept to their task, religion and preservation of their particular flavour inspired incredible mental fortitude. And they were rewarded when a ship named the Mountjoy was glimpsed on the horizon. It was laden with provisions, but the inhabitants of Derry must have shot themselves as it got stuck in the muddy banks, paralysed, a sitting duck. But in stereotypically Irish behaviour, the Jacobite shore gunners were blitzed. They'd been binging in a barrel of brandy, and they would have struggled to have hit a cow's horse with a banjo. The Mountjoy sailed into Derry, and the siege was lifted, and with it the waif-like Protestants whimpered with joy. So that's one down, the reference to Derry from the sash, but here's an interesting oddity for you. It's long been held at Noster, a quick way to tell someone's heritage is to get them to speak of that city. So if they call it Derry, then they're obviously a free stater, as a true and honest prod will only ever call it London Derry. Yet, in probably the most infamous song of the culture, it is referenced as Derry. Crazy, eh? Anywho, the mild kind of hypocrisy aside, we shift on to Enniskillen, which is actually the Battle of Newton Butler, a town maybe 20 miles further on. And at the time it was known as just Newton, or Newtown, if you're not from around these parts. Now the men of Enniskillen, who, who would go on to form the Enniskillings, which is a regiment of great standing, they wanted blood. They weren't happy to sit and defend. They wanted to fight. And despite being outnumbered three to one, they yelled and shrieked cries of no popery as they smashed into a Jacobite army on the 31st of July, 1689, the very same day as the withdrawal from Derry. Confusion saw the Jacobite cavalry turn tail and run, and their infantry was pushed back towards the marshlands of Upper Loch Iron. I count from the time say that of the 500 that tried to retreat by swimming the loch, only one made it alive, but he seems to have gone all kind of Jason Bourne and melted into history as I can find nothing on him. Which is kind of annoying, it'd be really interesting to hear his story. A story that probably culminates in 2,000 odd Jacobites being slaughtered that day. So with James still hearing about Ireland and giving kind of Protestant landowners the heebie-jeebies, William, or, or King Billy, as he'd maybe better known, felt that the time was right for his dramatic appearance. He landed in Carrickfergus, and immediately he declared that he was there to provide Ireland with a lasting peace. And it's amazing isn't it, how many warlords kind of spout similar sentiments while at the head of an army. And the time had come for the Battle of the Boyne. Now, it's the most famous battle, you know, the decisive battle where James died after being routed by William, you orange trouncing green, isn't it? Well, yes and no, and you'll see why in a minute. William's forces were comprised mainly of Dutch, uh, Danish, German, 
troops with French Huguenots plus some raw English recruits. You know, the Innes Killingers were in there too and a smattering of kind of local Protestant skirmishers. And they were described as being like a horde of Tartars. It's probably isn't meant as a compliment. They lined up against James's mostly French and mildly Gaelic Irish force. Though both sides, despite the kind of popular perception, you know, they contained decent quantities of both Catholics and Protestants in their ranks. Shocking, I know. I mean, history would make you think it was a religious war, wouldn't it? Oh, and they met on the battlefield on the 1st of July, 1690. Now, King Billy arrived, clad in his, his, his orange sash and probably not on a white horse. In classic uh, divide-and-conquer tactics, his plan was to lure the Jacobite cavalry upriver while his main force got stuck into the unsuspecting infantry. And it didn't last long, but it wasn't a route of legend, as many of the kind of beaten foe managed to retreat, you know, to fight another day. And even James was able to scarper off unhurt himself. He fled to Dublin, and he made a speech stating that his Irish soldiers had a quote, basically fled the field and left the spoil to the enemies, nor could they be prevailed upon to rally. So that henceforth I never more determined to head an Irish army and do now resolve to shift for myself. And so, gentlemen, must you. End quote. Totally gracious until the end there, wasn't he? I mean, he's basically shitting on the men that had left their farms and family to support him. He departed Ireland the very next day, never to return. A fact not lamented by those he left behind. The Jacobite commander, Patrick Sarsfeld, he was quite open with uh, his apportioning of the blame, as he declared, Change but kings, and we will fight you over again. So James II, former king of the British Empire, he'd fecked off in a ferry to France, you know, and there he would die of a brain hemorrhage a decade later. But his former supporters, they fought on, not for their absent monarch, but for themselves. King Billy too had left Ireland, heading back to England to set his arse on his new throne. But I wonder just how aware he was of, of the lasting legacy he'd created for himself in Ireland was still more to follow. The remaining Jacobite army had retreated west to Connaught and to the town of Athlone, situated behind the natural barrier of, of the River Shannon. Despite fierce defence, the Williamites forded the river downstream and took the unsuspecting Jacobites in their rear. With survivors, they pulled back the Ockram, which is a boggy battlefield tactically chosen to nullify the Williamite cavalry. It was 12th of July, 1691, and the fighting was fierce, with combined Irish-French forces holding firm, despite the blood flowing into their shoes. The French general, the Marquis de St. Ruth, invigorated by the stoicism of his men and sensing victory, exclaimed, The day is ours, my boys! Just as a timely cannonball removed his head from his shoulders. Upon seeing their now headless honcho, many of the old English Catholic gentry, basically those who could afford a horse, bricked it and abandoned the poor commoners to their fate. A fate that would end the war. Now not all would perish. A great number of Irish men were granted peaceful passage to, to the continent under the terms of the Treaty of Limerick, known as the Wild Geese. Many would go on to distinguish themselves on foreign battlefields, and for some odd reason, they always seemed to fight just that little bit harder if they come up against the crown of England. Now the Ockram battlefield itself, it became the subject of recent controversy in Ireland over plans to build the M6 motorway right through the middle of it. Historians, environmentalists and members of the Orange Order strenuously objected to the destruction of the 1691 fight site, the scene of possibly the largest battle of its type ever in Ireland. And they took their fight to the highest courts in the land. The motorway opened in 2009. So there you have it, the four references to the battles and a little bit about each. But I'm sure some of you might be querying those dates. 
As we said, the Battle of Boyne was on the 1st of July, 1690. Now, that does not seem to be common knowledge. Yet, the men of the 36th Ulster's Division, on the Somme, they knew that, which is why they felt it was such a great omen when the date of the offensive during World War I was delayed to the 1st of July, 1916. And I assume we all know how that fateful day went. We also said, though, that the Battle of Ockram was fought on the 12th of July, 1691. So, might be the words in some people's lips. Well, is it a coincidence that the main battle was actually fought on the 12th, but a year later than celebrated? No, it's most definitely not. It's actually the fault of the Gregorian calendar. In 1752, England adopted it to align with the rest of Europe, and in doing so shunted everything forward 11 days. So the Battle of Ockram was actually moved retrospectively to the 23rd of July. But you know, people had already made plans. You know, they'd booked their holidays, they'd bought their bunting, their buckfast was in the fridge. Quite frankly, they just loved getting lit on the 11th night, as that's tradition. Luckily for Billy Boys everywhere, the Battle of the Boyne shifted quite graciously to the 11th of July, so it made sense to choose it as a new battle to celebrate, to commemorate, and Ockram slid out of the Protestant consciousness. Does that suggest that it's not really about the anniversary, but more about the victory? I'll leave that one for you to decide. But hold up, there is a further sting in the tale, so to speak, a bombshell to drop. Well, the lyrics of the, the sash have evolved over the years. They always reflected you know, the orange side. But the actual music itself is maybe a little less tangerine in colour. The sash, it seems to date from early to mid-1800s, I suppose. But the melody can be traced back just a little earlier to 1787 and the song known as Irish Molly O. It's a love song, a song that lamented the enforced separation of two lovers. Instead of, it was old and it was beautiful, the lyrics were, she was young and she was beautiful. And it was recorded recently by Tommy Sands, if you want to check it out, although I can only find it in Apple Music. While I was doing this research, I also found other versions of more modern tunes. One called, The Hat My Father Wore from 1876. It's not really that modern. And then there's the fans of Stockport County Football Club, who sing, The Scarf My Father Wore. And by that, they're declaring their long-held support for their team. And even my beloved Liverpool FC, they have a tune called Poor Scouser Tommy, which is about a soldier going to fight in Africa. But in his final dying moments, all he can recall is his love for the club, for the Reds. But let's sum up the sash here for a second. It's a song about war and glory and taunting, harping back to the days of yore. And you may think that's kind of unbecoming of modern society. But the Stockport County song is a similar sentiments, that of not caring about what others think. This is our heritage, and a declaration that family will carry on that link ad infinitum. But you have to admit, there's a certain irony that one of the most recognisable and popular Protestant band tunes actually stems from a slightly older Irish folk song. Uh, anyway, that'll probably get me alienated from the orange side, won't it? So let's maybe have a go at stirring the pot with the green side here too, because balance is good, isn't it? Okay, so everybody knows Celtic fans stole You'll Never Walk Alone from the Liverpool fans. No need to delve in that concrete. But Liverpool fans also sang a song called The Fields of Anfield Road, which may or may not have inspired the worldwide fame of the Fields of Athenry. Many, however, they know it from the Euros of 2012 when the Irish football fans belted it out despite being 4-0 down and crashing out of the tournament. The commentators even ceased doing their jobs so that they could listen. So blown away were they by the rendition. And it seems now to be a staple at all Irish sporting events, especially football and rugby. But what exactly is it all about? Well, as you heard from the interviews above, some people thought it was reminiscing or celebrating a battle, which is a good guess, and that being their default answer possibly has something to do with, with coming from a land that has been marred deep in violence for huge periods of its history. Though thankfully not so much lately. However, it's actually a song about the potato famine, or more specifically, the effects the potato famine had on the island, focusing on one particular family. Yes, 
Phytothora infestans is its sciency name, a microscopic fungus that ironically came from America, it turns the stalks black and the axle potato to a soggy kind of mush thing. Around about a third of the island's crop was lost, and parts of Ulster escaped at first but then the rot hit the spuds in storage, and the poor were left with the cracking dilemma of serving their kids either grass, nettles or seaweed. Robert Peel, who was a British Prime Minister at the time, he took action and he ordered £44 million of Indian corn or maize from America and set up depots all over Ireland to sell at a cost price. They even commissioned recipe pamphlets that peddled their cornographic material and given top tips as to how to prepare the kind of unfamiliar crop for consumption. To be fair to Peel, he gets slammed for not giving the corn away for free, but he tried hard to help. He tried to repeal the corn laws, which he hoped would lead to cheap grain flooding Ireland, but it only cost him his job. The corn laws artificially propped up the price of bread as it kept it kept the foreign importers at bay and made huge profits for the landowners and the farmers of Britain. And guess who they worked for? Yeah, they were members of the government. And get this for a scoop, they didn't like it when Peel started meddling with their money so they bucked them out. Oh, as if that ever happens. Anyway, John Russell, he took his place and turned to a certain Charles Trevelyan whose basic policy was to make the poor work for their food, which I think's fair enough. If they weren't all bloody dying of starvation... That year of 1846, the blight hit again, but this time no part of Ireland was spared. The food of a whole nation had perished. Trevelyan refused to stop food exports and demanded that the Irish fund their own poor to work. The exodus of crops from the impoverished and frankly starving nation continued, exacerbated by Trevelyan botching the purchase of more maize. Whether that was incompetence or crassness, we do not know, but we do know that no more maize would arrive. A Belfast newspaper named The Vindicator gravely stated, Give us food or we perish. Ireland was in turmoil. Men were forced to work on public schemes to feed their families, but so many died of starvation, of malnutrition, of a fever sweeping the land. Horrific weather during that winter made a shit situation even worse. Many who were sent to work just did not return. It led to some casting glad eyes towards America, to the new world, to a land of prosperity to seek a better life. Others, though, they turned in desperation to theft. Theft of the corn in the stores that most were unable to afford. And it is that act that forms the crux of the fields of Athenry. It tells of a young girl, a mum, calling to Michael, her lover, who had been incarcerated for stealing Trevelyan's corn. An act of necessity as he sought to rescue his children from the perils of starvation. It talks of rebelling against the state, comparing the famine and the crown, one seemingly just as guilty as the other. For suspicious corn crimes, Michael finds himself shipped to Botany Bay in Australia, a penal colony on the other side of the world from his progeny. The chorus contains the most recognisable words. It speaks of a love that was still in its infancy, of two lovers dreaming of a future together. But now the Blight and the Brits colluded to scupper their lives, and the fields lie low, devoid of crop. It was written in the late 70s by Pete and John, and it's a work of fiction in a sense, but it parallels actual events of the blight. During the years of 1841-1851, the population of Ulster and Leinster declined by 15%, with 
with Munster dropping 22% and Connacht almost a staggering 30%. One million Irish men, women and children may have felt lucky to be waving goodbye to Ireland's shores, heading east across the Atlantic, but not all would survive the transport, and those that did found that the land of opportunity was not so welcoming to the vast numbers of penniless paupers arriving at the ports. Of those that stayed, it is claimed that a similar number died as a direct result of the blight, both contributing to the population possibly dropping by a quarter, yes, one quarter. That's a shitload of deaths and departures no matter how you look at it. Charles Trevelyan, name-checked in the song, is quoted as saying, The judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. Now that may or may not be true, depending on A, your belief system, and B, if you're a total psychopath. But what is definitely true is that even during the famine, Ireland was still exporting huge amounts of food. And while they too were victims of the blight, none of them suffered to the same severity, which poses the question as to why did the food keep leaving and raises the spectre of genocide. I'm not here to judge, well, I am a little, but I can't understand how it was allowed to happen without using that word. None of the provinces were spared, and none of the cultures were spared either, as the potato famine discriminated on wealth and social status, and certainly not on heritage. Yeah, I'm going to leave that there, as a portion of blame is not really the point of this podcast, and to be honest, it's a bit heavy going, so I'm going to hopefully lighten it up a bit here. Now, I played for Bangor Rugby Club for many years, and despite retiring couple of years back I still get asked to play in like exhibition games and stuff you know games against old star players like the Ulster 99 European Cup winning team or the perennial old boys where you get to feel great about yourself as you gas some 60 year old former international down the wing you know anyway our first play against teams from all over Ireland and when playing Canturk which is right at the tip of southern Ireland close to where it meets the sea it was suggested that we bring an over 35 team for like an exhibition game the bus stop was absolutely rammed with old guys, you know, ecstatic at getting away from family duty for a night. With the average age, like, closer to 45. When we put the kid on, it was a little tighter than is maybe socially acceptable. But we, we had some decent players and with a few pre-drinks on board, but felt quite confident. Yeah, that is until we sort of saw their team, like, stride out onto the pitch. I mean, they had an average age of about 30. Not a bald guy or a dad bought amongst them, and we got absolutely pumped. Especially my mate Tombo, he's a footballer by trade, and he came on the second half and lasted around 13 seconds or so before getting run over by a monster and signalling to the bench that he was done. It was great crack though, especially in the bar after, you know, doing the boat race, booing the man of the match awards and singing till your horse. And one such song was The Fields of Athenry, which we all belted out. Later in town, after watching Ireland dismantle the almighty New Zealand All Blacks, one of the Cantor boys was saying how it was great to see us singing Fields of Athenry. Fair play, fair play, were his words, and it made me wonder why. I mean, what was his point? Why did he see it as such gracious behaviour from us? And later, while kind of drunkenly pondering whether or not it was a good idea to climb up some huge statue, it kind of hit me he kind of assumed we were agents of the crown or something, British to the hilt. I mean, he failed to understand that we can still recognise oppression and shit behaviour when we see it. We are not blinded by the shite, so to speak. But it also made me realise that they seemed to see it as a more negative song than we did. And I'm not sure how many of our guys realise what it's all about. But even if they did, they're not going to not sing it because it's a belter tune. And it's not anti-Ulster, it's anti-British Empire from 150 odd years ago. It's sins of our father's fathers kind of stuff. But even then, it's not our fathers, it's not us. We're descendants from people who also suffered greatly in the famine. So if anything, we should sing it just as loud. And to be fair, we totally did. Now, I agonised about putting this bit in, as it's a little controversial, but we're supposed to be irreverent. And I did say I would upset both sides equally. So, here it is. Can it be argued that the potato famine 
while absolutely tragic at the time, now has left Ireland in a much stronger position in the world. Oof. Right now, take a second before cracking up, as I really mean, that's a rough one. But hear me out. It was a tragedy. Totally avoidable. A scandal of disgusting proportions. But if you set aside the emotion and the horror of the situation, it diversified Ireland's stock all over the world. Would you have a Celtic and a Rangers without the famine? Would you have had the Beatles? Would you have had an Irish bar in every corner of every city in the world? Maybe, but probably not. Everywhere we go, people seem to love us, love the accents, and love talking about the family they have in Donegal, or Killybaggy, or Bangor, or wherever. Many of those we speak to, they had families that emigrated because of the famine. And as we discussed in previous podcasts, the Ulster Scots have made it all over the world. And especially the American, we'll use them as an example, who you can count numerous famous sons and daughters amongst their ilk. Men and women who helped sculpt the country to be what it is now. People like Neil Armstrong, Mark Twain, Edgar Allan Poe, even Brett the Hitman Hart, and then there's some other lady called Megan Fox. Say no more. So what exactly do we take from all this? Well, one song is a marching rhythm, proclaiming like victory over somebody else. So slightly provocative, especially if it's sung in certain environments or situations. The other is more lament for what's happened. I mean, is this symptomatic of a bigger difference between the two musical styles? Is one more band-like, literally trying to drum up support for the cause? Whereas the other is more an expression of sadness, an outpouring of grief or resentment? Possibly, but I'm not so sure. I think there are examples of both types of songs for both cultures, and the similarities to me are more interesting than the differences. For example, The Fields of Athenry has been rebranded as a Protestant paramilitary song called A Father's Advice, which I assume is all on the SFA band list. It uses the same melody but comes at, comes at its message with a slightly different angle. But it also speaks of repression and a heritage that needs to be preserved. And these are common themes that run through most of the sectarian tunes. If you scrub away all the bile and all the hatred, people really just want to be recognised, want their culture protected, want to feel safe. And yes, maybe they could go about it in a nicer way. But it's just a bit easier to be a dick about things, isn't it? So to get to the point of this episode, it's basically to empower bigots with just a little knowledge. And hopefully that in turn makes them ponder their ideas and opinions in the world. But I doubt they will. I really don't recommend it, by the way. You know, being a bigot, that is. As in my experience, it's generally individuals that are ballbags and not entire races or religions. Saying that, though, I can also see how people can find solace and feel safer in their own communities. It's just easier, you know, a common collective that seems to think the same. And within that, some just get swept up in mob mentality. I can't or won't tell you what they think. Instead, I just hope that I can help you see not just the similarities between us all, but also the irony in the supposedly drawn divisional lines. I am an Ulsterman, a Northern Irishman, but also an Irishman and a Brit. These things are not mutually exclusive, you know. Okay, I feel like I'm getting a bit preachy here, so I'll move on and declare that we're going to end with a whopper tune that came to the fore last year at Euro 2016. And it illustrates uh, how the dividing lines are hopefully appealing to less and less of our people. You see, whilst the Russians and the English were knocking the bag out of each other, well, the Russians were smashing the English with knuckle dusters and chairs, the two sets of Irish fans, those supporting the Republic, including many from Ulster, and those supporting Northern Ireland, were loving life, you know, drinking beer, getting their pasty bakes burnt in the sun, and making tournament headlines for their party spirit, so much so that they both got awarded the Grand Vermeer, which is regarded as Paris's, like, most prestigious honour. They didn't fight, they didn't bicker, they just laughed at how stupid the English fans were for even trying to fight the state-sponsored Russians. Like both sets of Irish fans are notorious for their songs, 
as we've seen. But I'll have to give this one to the Gawa, the green and white army of Northern Irish football fans, and their tune, Will Griggs on Fire. It references a man who's probably the most famous player never to get in the pitch during a tournament. In proper Ulster song tradition, it was borrowed from somebody else, but made our own. Originally, it was a hit for Gala, known as Freed for Desire. It was sculpted by a fan of Will Griggs' club team, Wigan FC, and adopted slash brazenly stolen by the Gawa to become tune of the tournament as voted for by me. So we'll play us out, because I don't care who you are. Unless you're dead or dying, it is a belter of a tune and you will love it, especially the na-na-na-na-na bit. But you'll see what I mean. And much props to Keno, by the way, who penned this version. And as always, there will be a link to it on the website, irreverenthistory.com, with all the other videos there, including the Portuguese busker. And you can get us at Irev History on Twitter and Irreverent History on Facebook. But anyway, Merry Christmas or whatever holiday you're on. Have a good one, enjoy life, hug your loved ones, and maybe even sing along with the fans in France. Cheers. Later. Oh,